good to be reminded of the goodness of God. I was thinking about that, as that song, just the idea of being able to be reminded of God's goodness and God's faithfulness and how, how we need it. We need it in every day, every moment of our lives, just experiencing the goodness of God because there's so much around us that does not feel good. It just does not feel good. So it's good to know that God is good and he is with us and he is worthy of our worship and worthy of our song and all our lives he's been faithful and we just have to just kind of settle in that and be encouraged by that. Well, my name is Jason and I also want to welcome you here. It's good to be able to bring uh, the scriptures with, uh, to you today and I'm looking forward to continuing our Romans teaching series. Um, if you're here in the room, I want to welcome you. If you're watching at our uh, Moon Campus, I want to say thank you for checking in. If you're checking out at our classic venue, thank you so much for watching. And also, those of you who are watching online, especially if you are, you know, maybe just in a predicament where you're really struggling to watch the service online, thanks for making the work and, and putting in the effort uh, to be in with us today. We're going to continue our Romans teaching series, and I'm looking forward to continuing uh, what Pastor Jeff has been uh, taking us through as we've been looking at this letter in Romans. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good weekend to, to be considering what, what, uh, what God is doing in our lives. It's a good weekend to consider, um, just ask some questions and have some concerns about, about uh, what God might be doing. Um, and, and the reason why I say that is because... Um, it's, it's March Madness, and, uh, and I know you're thinking, like, what does God have to do with that? Well, it actually has to do with the, uh, this idea that um, I, I, I have all my, my kids do a bracket. So we do a family, like, and I don't know if you're into that sort of thing, but we, we do the brackets and all that. And I uh, was helping out with my two littlest kids filling out their brackets. And they, you know, one of my son, he's, he's seven, and he is super excited about it. And my five-year-old daughter has no idea what's going on. And she has lots of questions and lots of concerns about it. She's like, what is that? Who is that? What's that team? And, and she has no idea what's happening. My son, however, he, he's, he filled out his bracket and he said, I don't think I'm going to win any games. I don't think I'm going to do it, do it, do, do, get anything right. And then he looked at it for a second. He said, actually, I think I'm going to get them all right. <laughs> so his concerns went out the window real quick. But we have a lot of questions and concerns. We have a lot of questions and concerns in our lives and things like that. We have questions and concerns. My, my family recently had a challenging uh, last week. Uh, we were in the hospital for, for a few days with, with our daughter, Mila. And uh, she uh, basically has, um, has it's, she's, it's, she's a situation now where she's got something in her life that's going to be with her for the rest of her life. And as a parent, that's hard to hear. As a parent, that's hard, it's hard to deal with, and it's challenging, and it's, and it's overwhelming. And I've got questions, and I've got concerns. And you may be here today with questions and concerns in your own life. Questions and concerns about a variety of things. I have questions and concerns about Mitch Trubisky. If you know what I'm saying, you know what I'm saying. I have, I have questions and concerns about rising gas prices, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I have questions and concerns about wars that are happening around the world, significant wars, and what that means and, and how, how, how God is working in that situation or is, is God present in that situation. I have questions and I have concerns, and you probably are in the same place. But one thing I think 
that we have questions and concerns about, maybe more than anything else. We have questions and concerns uh, about other people. We ask questions like, why do they do that? Or what's their deal? Or what's their problem? We probably think about more than we even realize the questions and concerns we have about other people. What's their problem? Turn to your neighbor and say uh, politely, what's your problem? <laughs> See, th that's proof right there that we're so concerned about the deal, about what other people, their problem is. And, and, and yeah, we, we're concerned about that, about what other people's problems are. We have questions about what they do. We have concerns about why, why, they, why they do the things that they do. And I've titled our message here today, Questions and Concerns. Questions and Concerns, because we've all got them. And I think that we're going to realize that when we look into this text in Romans, that Paul has some questions and concerns as well. He has some questions and concerns as well. And we're going to look at this and see how he raises some questions. And he also has some concerns about his audience. So if you would, I, I hope that each one of you has received this uh, scripture journal. We're going to be using this as we go through our text today. I'm going to be using this as we go through our text today. We're going to be uh, in Romans. We're going to be on page 14 of our scripture journal. If you don't have one of these, you can head to the back, hopefully at our information table. We've still got some available. Or you can follow along in version or on your Bible. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3. And we're going to be at Roman, uh, verse 1 of Romans chapter 3. So if you would turn there, we'll uh, get started. Now I, like I said, I think a lot of us have questions and concerns. And we're going to see that Paul has questions and concerns about uh, the, the audience that he is writing to and the, the people that he wants, wants to interact with here in chapter 3. So we're going to start off at verse 1. Romans chapter 3. 3 verse 1 Then what advantage has the Jew or what the value of or what is the value of circumcision much in every way to begin with the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God what if some were faith unfaithful does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God by no means let God be true though everyone were a liar as it is written that you, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abandons to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. We're going to stop right there. Now, you may be reading those words and, and thinking, I've got questions. <laughs> I, I've, got, I've got questions on what is going on here. What is happening in these verses? And I think it will help a little bit if we back up, if we back up some in Romans to get a better understanding of what Paul is trying to do in these first uh, verses of chapter 3. If we back up a little bit, we're going to see that all the way in chapter 1, Paul is trying to help his audience understand something about themselves. And it's not just that there is sin. 
It's not just that there is sin. You remember when we were looking at chapter 1, it starts off in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed, and he goes on to talk about how sin has crept in to mankind, basically. And mankind has given up the glory of God for basically himself. And so it goes on this string of, of these listing these sins and listing these ways that man has basically given up on the glory of God. And we read that, and we read it, and we identify one with the sins and as, we, as we understand what Paul is saying. But what I think Paul is also trying to do in those verses is he's trying to help the people who he's writing to understand that they have also sinned in the same way. In chapter 2, he starts off with, he says, So then, what right do you have to judge? For if you pass judgment, you bring on condemnation, con condemn condemnation for, your, for yourself. If you bring on judgment, you are basically judging yourself for doing the same thing. So Paul is not only pointing out the sin in the world, but he's trying to help his audience understand that they too are sinners. That though they might agree with what he's saying in Romans chapter 1 about those other sinners, he's trying to help them understand that if they judge those other sinners— they're basically condemning themselves because they are in the same boat. And for the next chapter, he begins to talk about how the, the, the people have tried to honor God in certain ways, tried to please God by basically uh, following the Jewish law or Jewish customs or whatever it might be, and ultimately that they are not able, no one is able to measure up. No one is able to be right before God on their own. And he's trying to help his audience get to a place where they understand that they are all on the same page. They're all on the same page, and they're under the same power, the power of sin. And so when we get to chapter 3, we're now in a place where he's ending this, this section of helping his readers understand the sin that they are under. And what he's doing is he goes on this conversation that kind of feels like he's having it with an imaginary person. He raises a question, and then he answers it. He raises a question, and then he answers. Uh, anyone here uh, have an imaginary friend when you were growing up? I hear lots of yeses. Well, it kind of feels like that here with Paul, that he is having a conversation with this, this imaginary person asking him questions. And this kinds of thing has already been happening in the previous chapter, in chapter 2. But here we see that he is raising up these questions to help make a point about who God is in the midst of this people who are unfaithful and unrighteous. And he wants to help his audience understand this. He wants to help them understand that they are on the same page, under the same power. But again, it's not just to point out point out that, the, that they are sinners, but it is to help them expose the lie that they might look out and say, yes, I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as them. I'm not as bad as them. That's the whole idea. It's like, I, I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to follow God, but what's their problem? What's their problem? What's their deal? So he's not simply trying to point out that you are a sinner and you need a Savior. He is also trying to help his audience understand that your sin is on the same page and you are in the same boat as everyone else. And that you are, you are in, under the same power of sin. 
You might say, and the, his audience might say, well, hey, I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as them. Paul wants to eliminate that kind of thought. He wants to help the Roman church who is experiencing division. He wants to help them be able to look across that division and see that, they, that group A is in the same group, as, same group as group B, that they are on the same page, that they, have, that they have no reason, whether they are Jew or Gentile, to look at the other, whether they are a Gentile who's new in the faith or a Gentile who's trying to be more Jewish in their faith, to look more like the, what, what they think that they should look. No matter where they are, that they should be able to look across that division or look across those differences and be able to see that they're on the same page under the same power of sin. And this is important because this is what's happening as we, get, as we continue on at the beginning of chapter 3. They're on the same page, under the same power, and they're in this, all in the same boat. So Paul begins this chapter by asking a question, and it's as if it's his imaginary person. We're going to call this person the questioner. The questioner is going to ask some questions in these first eight verses. And Paul is going to respond back. So going back to verse 1, the questioner asks, after Paul has been talking about how uh, the circumcision is, is not what God is looking for but, uh, the, from in the body, but from the heart is what God is ultimately looking for. And this idea that, that, uh, that God is looking at the inward person. So, so then he starts off, the questioner asks, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what, what, the, what is the value of circumcision? And Paul responds to that question much in every way. Basically, to start off with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What's he saying there? Is basically that the Jews, that the people of God, were entrusted with the words of God. They were entrusted with the things that, that God wanted to not only say to them, but to pass on to others. So they were entrusted with those words. And then the questioner steps in, what happens if those Jews were unfaithful? Would it mean that God is not faithful? See what he says in verse 2. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? So he brings up this second question. What happens if they're unfaithful? And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm assuming that he's, this questioner is asking, what, basically, what if they were unfaithful to this word that they were entrusted with? What if they didn't follow it? Does that mean that God is, faith, is, doesn't have, is not faithful either? Is that what you're saying, Paul? And then Paul responds to the questioner, No, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. So he's saying, absolutely not. The, unf the unfaithfulness of the, of, of the Jewish in that scenario does not mean that God doesn't have, is not faithful either. So let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. This scripture that Paul is referring to is from Psalm chapter 51. From Psalm chapter 51, in, a, uh, in, the, in the NIV, it reads like this. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then it says, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. This is the psalm that you may remember the story of David when he, uh, when he takes Bathsheba against her will and then basically murders 
her husband. And David finds himself in this predicament where he's, where he's committed the crime of rape and murder, and he is coming before God, pleading before him. And he says these words, Against you I have sinned and done evil in your sight. And he says, So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. You are right to do this. Your judgment is right. You are justified in what you say in this situation. And Paul is using this to say that God has every right to, be, uh, to bring about justice, to bring about judgment in this scenario. He said that the unfaithfulness of, of man does not mean, especially man that has been entrusted with the words of God, the unfaithfulness of them does not mean that God is not faithful. God is faithful, and his, 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 he's uh, right in his verdict and justified when he judges. Verse 5, the questioner asks another question. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous? to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way. So he's, he's building on this argument. Basically, after the second question, Paul's like, no, no, God is faithful. God is right, even in the midst of man's unfaithfulness. And then the questioner says, well, if it's God's faithfulness and righteousness is demonstrated in the midst of man's unfaithfulness, then, then what, what should we say? That why, why, why should God be able to, uh, to, to say anything about us? Why would be he be able to inflict wrath on us, Paul says? And then he also kind of clarifies it and says, or uh, uh, he says, I speak in a human way, as if to say this is, this is, this is really a, this is a human question here. This, this, is, this is trying hard, okay? I'm trying to prove my point here. But he, he responds to the question and says, By no means, for then how could judge, God judge the world? Basically, God has every right to judge the world, even though our unrighteousness might still demonstrate that he is faithful. God has every right, because if he doesn't, then who is going to make things right? Who is going to make things right if God is not the one to do it? We need God to make things right. Verse 7, the questioner asks, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? He continues, the questioner, to build on it. So why don't I just continue to do evil so that God's goodness and God's judgment and God's justice and righteousness may come? Why not continue to do this? And Paul responds, their condemnation is just. It almost feels like Paul is saying, like, this is, this is, this is ridiculous. There's no, these, these questions are not going to get us anywhere. These questions are not going to get us anywhere because God is good, God is right, and God is just. And we can rely on that. And when we see, when we, when we have this idea that maybe our unrighteousness will demonstrate the goodness of God, and that that is somehow reason that we should be unrighteous, then we are, we are setting ourselves up for failure. For when we see our unrighteousness as advantageous to God, we invite condemnation. For pursuing unrighteousness, 
for God to demonstrate his goodness is anti-Christ. To pursue unrighteousness, to demonstrate God's goodness, is, is anti what Christ is all about, which is bringing righteousness. Our unfaithfulness is not a, a means to an end. Our unfaithfulness is not a way to bring about God's goodness. God is going to be good no matter what. Our unrighteousness is not a means to an end. It is anti-righteous. It is anti-Christ. And Paul is trying to, 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 set, to set this understanding that we can rely on the faithfulness of God no matter how unfaithful man might be. And all the things that he was saying earlier in chapter 2 about these things can't earn you favor, being trying to be and follow the law in this way can't earn you uh, favor in the eyes of God. That's not what works. It's almost like we're getting to the point where it's like not even unfaithfulness, not even unrighteousness will earn you favor in the eyes of God. And, you're, and you think that's like, of course not. But the questioner is raising these questions so that Paul even eliminates that as an option. Then we get to verse Nine. What then? Are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Or you might have a version that says, are under the power of sin. And I think that's important to, to understand that Paul is saying there that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. Remember, he's still making this argument that we are on, that Jews and Greeks, the people in his audience, are on the same page under the same power of sin. They're all in this predicament. So what then? Are we Jews any better off? Paul says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin, as it is written, verse 11, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul goes on to give these scriptures to his audience to help them understand this predicament, this situation that they are in under the power of sin. And you may have heard these words before. You may have heard them uh, in other parts of Scripture. You may have heard this and read this in Romans before. And it's a very popular Scripture to help us understand that we are on our own not righteous, that we, we are on our own not understanding of God, that, that we need more than just our own understanding, and we need more than our own willpower to make things right. And it's not necessarily talking about how bad, how specifically bad you are or how bad you are, but this expanse of the power of sin and how it affects every one of us and how it affects us individually and in our relationships. And notice how he's using these phrases and these terminologies of describing the, our body. 
how, how we are uh, sin, sinful even in our mouths and in, in, in our feet and in our, in our eyes. All these things describing the body and how it affects every part of us. That we are truly under the power of sin. So, when he starts off in verse 9, it's basically, so does anyone have the upper hand? Does anyone have the upper, upper hand, whether they are a Jew because they've, they've been under the law and they know the law, or uh, does anyone have the upper hand? And Paul says, no. No one does. No one is righteous. Not even one. We have these scriptures that Paul mentions, and they all come from uh, the Old Testament scriptures. So these verses all have uh, th- this context that they come from verses in the Psalms. And there's this chart that you could, you could write down some of these Psalms if, if you don't already have them in your Bible, but you could write them down in your notes on how these Psalms connect to uh, these verses here in Romans. Because I think you're going to find that you're wanna, you'll want to check them out. Because I believe that what Paul is doing with these verses here in chapter 3 and using these verses uh, from the Psalms and from Proverbs is to help his readers understand, again, that they are on the same page and under the same power. And that they not only, yes, not only they have sinned in their life, but they can no longer believe the lie that other people's sins are worse than their own. And you see, sometimes I wonder if that's more of a hang-up for us than just hearing that we have sin. Because everybody kind of just knows, it's like, I'm not perfect right? I, I know that I don't always do what I'm supposed to do, but when Paul is trying to help us understand that it's, it's not just that, it's that you also tend to look at other people's sins. We also tend to look at other people's sins as greater than our own, and Paul wants to get rid of that kind of mindset. So there's these parallels, and he talks about no one, no one being righteous, no one understanding, no one, no one seeks for God. This is from Psalm 14. Or their throat is an open grave. That's from Psalm 5. The venom of asp is under their lips. It's from Psalm 140. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's in Psalm 10, and it continues to go on. And what I think is really interesting about these scriptures is that when you go to the the, the text from the Old Testament, they say a little bit more than what's being said here, here in Romans chapter 3. And I want to point out just one example for you really quick, and that's in Psalm chapter 5. You see, in Romans 3 verse 13, he says, their throat is an open grave. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Now the psalmist is writing this in Psalm chapter 5. It's a psalm of David. And if I go to Psalm chapter 5 and I read verse, uh, verse 9, For there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self is destruction, their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. That's very, very violent language. It's very, very uh, challenging to hear. So he's, he's using that text, but what's—Paul is using that text, but what's interesting about this psalm to me is that if you back up— If you back up to verse 8, David says, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. He's saying, God, bring about your righteousness. Bring about 
your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me because my enemies do this. My enemies, my enemies have no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. And we could keep reading and keep going and see what he says. And why I think this is interesting is because Paul is basically helping his audience understand the sin in their life, right? And, and their sin. But what he's doing is he's using a text that they would have prayed about their enemies. Because a good Jew, and for our sake, a good Christian, will pray, Lord, in your righteousness, lead me because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. So this is a prayer about his enemies, and yet Paul is using these words that David is using about his enemies to describe his audience. Paul is now using these words to help his readers understand that they have taken the characteristics of the enemy. They have taken the characteristics of those who are wicked. They have taken the characteristics of the enemy, the sinner. And I think you will find, and you can do this in your, your own personal study, that if you look at all those psalms that are connected to these words that Paul is saying in Romans 3, is that he's doing the same thing in all of them. Every one of them is, the psalmist is addressing the enemy, is praying that they would have salvation from the wicked, praying that their adversary would not be productive, that they, would, that they would not be successful. And yet Paul is using these words to describe his audience, to help them understand that yes, they are sinners, but they have no right to look at their enemy. They have no right to look at those on the outside who are wicked, that those who are opposed to them and think that their sin is less than theirs. Because Paul wants his audience to understand that they are on the same page and under the same power. And those verses earlier in chapter 3, talking about the faithfulness of God, despite our unfaithfulness and despite our unrighteousness, help us to understand that God will continue to be faithful even in the midst of our unfaithfulness and even in the midst of our sin. Even though none of us is righteous, no, not one, God's faithfulness will prevail. These, these words and these, psalm, the, uh, these, these psalms that Paul is using help us to understand that we are in one sense unified. We, under the power of sin, we are divided in our humanity, but unified in our defiance. We are divided in our humanity, but unified in our defiance. That's what, it, it's, what it's like to be under the power of sin. We are collectively united in our defiance and divided against one another. When we are under the power of sin, we are united in our efforts to destroy the other. And Paul wants to eliminate that. Paul wants, us, wants to eliminate that to, for his audience, and he's probably not thinking of you and I. Let's not flatter ourselves to that degree, but let's do ourselves a favor and recognize that what he is saying to his audience absolutely means something for us. 
and that it would be very important for us to recognize that we also are on the same page and under the power of sin and that we need someone to set things right. We need God to come and make things right. This section started off in Romans chapter 1, remember? Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. For those who believe, first to the Jew and then the Gentile. Paul is introducing this idea to, to his audience, this gospel that will basically wipe away division, that will bring about peace, that will bring about restoration, that will bring about righteousness, and it is the power of God. And we look at these, these verses that he's saying in chapter 3 about our unrighteousness and how we are far from, far from being what God is calling us to be. We, 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 we read those and we realize that God needs to break in that power of sin with the power of the gospel. And that we collectively need the gospel. Not just I need the gospel. Not just you need the gospel. But that we need the gospel. We need the mercy and the grace of God and the power of the gospel to break in the power of sin. Because it doesn't just affect me. My sin doesn't just affect me. Your sin doesn't just affect you. It is collectively our, uh, our sin that needs to be broken into. And God is going to do that, and we're going to continue to see that as we continue on in chapter 3. He's going to turn the page in verse 21 in, this, in one sense. We're all on the same page right now, under the same power. But God's, God, Paul is going to talk about what God has done through Jesus. But we're not going to get there yet. Let's finish our, finish our section. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So here we get this understanding that these, these things are being said that Basically, we cannot be justified by the law because, look, the law itself is helping us understand how we are apart from God. We are not righteous. We are not good on our own. We need God to come and make things right. The law does this, and Paul says, so that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth may be stopped. In Paul's world, if you, had, if you were on trial, had nothing to say to, to defend yourself, had nothing more to say, you would put, put your hand to your mouth. Say, I have, I have nothing to, to, to justify myself, to justify my cause. I have no case. And he's saying that, that the law is, is doing that here. It's basically shutting every mouth. So you may have, look at these verses, and you may have some questions and concerns. As we saw, Paul raises some questions, and Paul brings up some concerns about where his audience is and where we are as people. And rather than bringing the wrath of sin upon ourselves, and basically what I believe that Paul is referring to when he talks that way is, is that when we sin, we are bringing the repercussions of that sin upon ourselves. 
In chapter 1, when, when it says God handed them over to this and God handed them over to that, that is God's wrath being revealed. So when we sin, we're, we're bringing that upon ourselves. So the question and concern you may have is then what do I do to help make that not a reality? What do I do that, so, so that righteousness will be revealed in me? So that these words that Paul has been saying will not be true of me. And that I will be able to bring about the power of the gospel to those around me. What can I do about that? By the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to push back against the power of sin. And we need to work on our core. All right? We need to work on our core. So for before, before we wrap up our time, you know those, those verses that Paul was using in, from the Psalms and Proverbs, talking about how our whole body is impacted, our mouths, our, our feet, all that kind of stuff? We're going we're gonna to push back against that and, and, and see how we can respond to that so that we can bring about righteousness rather than continue unrighteousness. And the first thing we need to do, you, you want to have some action steps here, the first thing that we can do is close your mouth. The first thing that you can do in response to what you're hearing here is close your mouth. Why do I say that? Because it is so easy for us to point out the sins of others. Remember, Paul's been trying to get, get rid of that mentality, to get rid of that idea that we would point out and judge the sins of others. And as verse 19 says, now that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law so that every mouth may be stopped we're going to apply that and say there are times when I need to close my mouth and not point out the sins of others. The second thing we can do, second thing you can do, is open your hands. Open your hands. Paul wants his audience to understand no more pointing fingers no more pointing fingers to the other side. No more raising fists to bring about division. None of that. That's not going to work. That's not bringing peace. That's not bringing righteousness in your relationships. That's not the power of the gospel. So what we can do is we can open our hands to receive what God has for us, to receive judgment. And you might be thinking like, no, no, no. I don't want that. I don't, I don't want God's judgment. I want the good stuff. I want the mercy. I want the grace. But let me explain. With God, it's all good. Right? It's all good. It's all good. God's judgment on my life is good. When I desire God's judgment on my life, that is good because he knows exactly what I need. He knows what is better for me than I do. He brings light where I have no, where, where darkness can't help me see things. And so we welcome it. And here's another reason why I say that is because the wicked don't want God's judgment. That's a characteristic of the wicked. They don't want God's judgment. Why do I say that? Psalm chapter 1 says, uh, he the psalmist is writing about, uh, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. Uh, his delight is in the law of so some, someone who is following after God. And he says, it's not so with the wicked. They do not delight in the Lord. The wicked, verse 5 of chapter 1, uh, will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked don't want, have, don't want to have anything to do with God's judgment. 
because it brings about righteousness. So for us, when we read these words, we come with open hands, not closed fists. We come with open hands, not pointing fingers at the other person. We come with open hands and say, God, do what you need to do in me. Bring what you need to bring in my life so that I can be righteousness revealed to those around me. C-O-R, renew your mind. How can we push back against the power of sin around us? Renew our mind. Paul, Paul talks about that later in Romans in chapter 12. He says, renew your mind. I'm going to go there. It's on page 54 of your notes. He says in verse 2 of chapter 12, do not be, con or in your uh, 54 of your journal, in, in uh, chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. When we renew our mind, when we let God's Spirit renew us, we know what is good. You might think, well, that's, that's not that big of a deal. I kind of have an idea what is good. No, under the power of sin, it's really hard to know what's good. When we push back against that, when we let the power of the Spirit in our lives, we renew our minds so that we know what is good and we live what is good with those around us. So how do we push back? One, we probably need to spend more time closing our mouths. Two, we need to spend more time opening up our hands. Three, we need to renew our mind and E of the word core is enlarge your vision. Enlarge your vision. Notice at the end of what he says in verse 18 of chapter 3, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They cannot see, they, they cannot see the kinds of things that God can do. They cannot see the power of God. They cannot see the good judgment of God. They cannot see the righteousness that God's going to bring about. And for us, in order to push back against the power of sin, is we need to enlarge our vision and see what God wants to do in us and with us and through us. We might be in a position where our eyes are very narrow focused it's like i know i know the bible i know what i know what god says i know what i need to do but i i honestly believe that god wants us to continue to enlarge our vision say god what are you trying to show me today how can i better understand how to live for you now better than i did yesterday not so that I can somehow earn i don't need i don't need to do that to earn his favor god's grace is is pushed all through that. No, it's so that I can be a part of pushing back the power of sin. Close your mouth, open your hands, renew your mind, and enlarge your vision. Ask yourselves the question, what do I need to do? When do I need to spend more time closing my mouth and not calling out the sin of others? When do I need to spend more time opening my hands to receive what God really wants me to experience and know rather than pointing or raising a fist? When can I spend more time to renew my mind so that God can show me what is good? And God, what do I need to do to enlarge my vision of what you're going to do? You see, God... Is, is bringing in 
restoration. God is bringing in reconciliation. God is bringing in righteousness. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, first to the Jew and then the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of God is being revealed, and we're going to look more at that next week. But for right now, consider how you might push back against the power of sin around you. And with Paul, what I believe, what he wants us to understand is that begins with understanding that we're all on the same page. We all need God, and no one's sin is greater than my own. And I need to call out to God for his rescue and his salvation for me and for us. The righteousness of God is being revealed. What do we need to do to continue to see that come about in our midst? God is faithful. God is good. And sometimes we need to be reminded not only of that, that God is faithful and good, but we need to be reminded of where we stand and how much we need God as individuals and as a church and as a community. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness that never stops. We thank you for your love for us. And we thank you that in the, in the midst of this challenging passage, that you demonstrate your faithfulness and show us how good you are and how you desire to, to know us and to have us know you. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts for how we should live. That we would recognize that you are God and that we need to do whatever we can to eliminate our self-striving and our pride. Lord, help us to not get in the way of what you want to do in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Pray that your faithfulness would continue to show us where to go and how good you are. We thank you for this time. We thank you for being our God. In Jesus' name, amen.